Today I want to continue with where we left off yesterday, talking about putting down your chains and stepping out into this battle against addiction. So I alluded to this kind of downer effect that happens in recovery groups uh, where it just doesn't seem like there are that many victories. Uh, so in most recovery groups, you know, mo- milestones are marked with some kind of a chip or uh, these cheap metallic coins about the size of a silver dollar. And they give them out for uh, first-time visitors in one month and three months and six months and uh, depending on the group, maybe nine months or one year and then uh, annual, annual chips that they give out. So here's a statistic for you. At AA, they give out 20 first-time chips for every one-year coin. And so when I first started re- in recovery, uh, not only did they give out this, this uh, first-time visitor chip, but they also had this chip. Well, it was the same chip. They, they would give one out uh, for those if you relapse and wanted to reset your sobriety. Now, I don't know how much my failures had to do with it, but uh, they stopped giving those out soon after I started attending uh, this recovery group. So with all these failures, and so few people actually making it to their first year, especially second year, third year, five year, ten year, um, I read today about a, a, a guy who was celebrating his 10,000th day of sobriety. That's 27 years. And uh, what, a, what a wonderful testimony. What a, what a wonderful thing to accomplish. But how few examples we have of that in recovery. Why is it so difficult? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27... And following, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, Cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. In this passage, Jesus gives us two extreme ways not to deal with adultery, but to deal with lust. Those of us who are either recovering from sexual sin or still in the throes of habitually acting out, need to see that the extent to which Jesus thinks we need to be willing to go to deal with that sin in our life. I once read of a priest uh, who gouged his eyes out lest he should look again upon uh, pornography, only to discover that the images were already in his head. Now, what I had never considered before is that Jesus also suggested that we might rather cut off our hands rather than acting out. At least he didn't go as far as Paul when uh, Paul wished that those who 
were requiring circumcisions of others would uh, go and emasculate themselves. So Jesus gives us these absurd remedies, uh, not as actual suggestions, but to show us the extent to which we must be willing to take action to overcome the temptations of sin. This is especially applicable to those of us who are caught in habitual sin and addictions. Can't you just imagine Jesus telling an alcoholic that he might rather slit his own throat than take another drink of alcohol, or a junkie that he may as well slit his wrist rather than inject again? See, these messages that are extreme tell us that extreme sin requires extreme actions to overcome them. We must be willing to adopt a whatever-it-takes attitude. Now, I often see uh, two problems that keep people from adopting those kind of extreme recovery attitudes. The first is that we just don't think that our sin is all that extreme. Certainly, Jesus, you aren't suggesting that lust is as big of a problem as actually committing adultery. Later on, the problem is, certainly, Jesus, hating someone isn't as bad as murdering them, is it? Sometimes we are in complete denial of how bad our sins and addictions are. I remember I was out with uh, a good friend one time, and uh, uh, he lit up a cigarette, and I looked at him and I said, oh, I didn't know that you were a smoker. And he said, oh, I, I, I'm I, really not. He said, uh, I gave these up years ago, but just occasionally I'll have one when uh, things are especially stressful. And so we went on, he, put, he took one big uh, drag, uh, and as to... You know, like a person who is in line uh, with a drink uh, at an event where they don't allow uh, you to take the drinks in with you, you know, taking that big gulp. He took one big drag, uh, last drag of his cigarette and then put it out. And then as we were talking uh, a couple of minutes later, uh, he lit uh, up another cigarette. And I just looked at him incredulously, and he didn't get what was going on. Uh my my mouth must have been agape because he said, what's going on? What, 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 what's, what's up? And I gave him one of those looks like, uh, do you not see what you just did? <laughs> you know? And he goes, what? And I waved like Vanna White uh, displaying the, the letters on Wheel of Fortune, you know, to his cigarette. And he goes, Oh my goodness, I didn't even realize that I had done that. He, his addiction was so much part of his life that he wasn't even conscious of the fact that he had lit another cigarette. Now, that's denial. Another way we deny our problems is by focusing on others' problems. This happens a lot in marriages. A lot of men I know resist getting the help that they need for themselves and insist maybe that it's their wife who needs counseling. Uh, That's true of one friend uh, to whom I suggested years ago that he needed to go get counseling for himself. But he wasn't the problem. He just knew 
that if his wife would straighten up, things would be okay. Well, now he's on his third marriage, and wouldn't you know it, his third wife has problems too. He just doesn't understand why he's always attracted to women with problems. <laughs>